You're listening to Simulcast, a podcast about healthcare simulation. So welcome to Simulcast. I'm Victoria Brazel and today I'm joined by three great friends for our July Simulcast Journal Club podcast. And in this episode, we're going to be talking about diversity and inclusion and a paper titled Lack of Diversity in Simulation Technology, uh, recently published in Simulation in Healthcare uh, this year, 2020, by Con Igliaro and colleagues. So I won't tell you more about the paper because Ben's going to do that, but I will introduce my guests. Uh, of course, Ben Simon, always on the Journal Club. How are you, Ben? I'm very good, my friend. Looking forward to tonight. All right. And of course, Jess Stokes Parish, one of our other Simulcast co-producers, uh, but relevant to this, also someone who's been promoting the cause of diversity in simulation, uh, particularly in the Women in Sim uh, group. How are you, Jess? Good, thank you, Vic, and it's great to be included in this conversation tonight. And uh, I'd like to welcome, though, our special guest for tonight, Karen Jort-Lal, who's a PEDS and PEM trainee who works with me as a simulation fellow at Bond, uh, trained in New Zealand, and I think has developed a um, particular interest in simulation, which I'm glad about. And she works in both our virtual hospital as well as our face-to-face simulations, doing design, delivery, and debriefing. So... How are you, Karen George? I'm very well, thank you, Vic, and I really appreciate you all having me on the show today. Yeah, fantastic. It's great to have you along. So we might just jump right in here. Uh, Jess, now I'm going to start with you because one of the things that um, started this was you did a great thread on Twitter all about various issues related to diversity. Uh, Would you like to sort of recap on that and set the scene for how we should start to look at the paper? For sure. You're listening to Simulcast. Um, the Black Lives Matter movement, etc. We're seeing lots of social media commentary from various groups. And, and I guess I was taking a lot of time to self-reflect on myself personally. And I, I kind of suddenly thought, hang on, what about education? How do we perpetuate these issues that we are discussing around misrepresentation, exclusion of particular groups, stereotypes. Um, and of course, you might recall the sim talk we did at SMAC last year, where we we're talking about this whole idea of stereotypes versus individual cases. And I thought we probably do this a lot in simulation. You know, we know in healthcare that people have suboptimal experiences if they have certain ethnic backgrounds. You know, for example, pain is not taken as seriously um, in those that have black skin. Um, we've got countless stories of Indigenous people in Australia having bad experiences in healthcare. And I thought we've got an opportunity not only to redirect how we design our simulation, but actually to actively explore anti-racism and anti-discrimination in simulation. So that was kind of my my background thinking and I somehow whipped it into a thread and got some really good conversation going. And then we saw this paper and thought, you know, it was Ben's suggestion, how about we take up this paper for the month of June? Uh, all right, Ben, I'll bring you in here. So Jess obviously set the tone there and uh, you thought this was the ideal paper. Why don't you tell us about the paper and uh, 
run us through the content of it. Sure, absolutely. And I guess we have talked about hidden curriculums a fair amount in uh, Simulcast podcast history so far, and I think that relates to this a lot. Um, so in the paper, Canigliaro et al. present a non-systematic review of simulation technology available in 2018 with respect to skin tone, age, and sex. So they begin the article by acknowledging that many educational institutions now have diversity policies for faculty, uh, but they question whether this alone is sufficient, and they argue that achieving true appreciation and understanding of diversity may require that the educational environment is itself diverse. And I think they sort of imply both in the curriculum, but also in the physical space. And so they use this perspective to examine the commercially available simulation products that they could find available in 2018. So utilizing catalogs of eight companies that they found via an online search engine, the authors categorized the items available into light and dark skinned, geriatric and obese subcategories. And while they acknowledged this was not a systematic review, the results displayed are pretty damning. So from the catalogs reviewed, products are vastly more likely to be advertised using photographs of light-skinned mannequins. And with the exception of one company, most stock less than 25 products with dark skin tone offerings compared to hundreds of products with light skin. So uh, company A in the paper, for example, stocks 520 products with skin components. They display visually 486 products with light skin photographs on their website, and they have 12 photos of dark skin products. So even the companies with products that are essentially equally available in all skin tones still tend to advertise them primarily with light skin. Uh, in essence, uh, even when a diverse product is available, they were somewhat visually concealed from the advertising. And in addition to this, the products which did feature racially diverse options tended to be associated with trauma, such as gunshot wounds, or sexually related issues, such as sexual health training, breast milk training, and female genital mutilation. So when exploring simulated patients, which the study does as well, through looking at some online demonstration videos, they noted a really similar visual bias as well, both in simulated patients and the real patients who used in demonstration videos who tend to or trend towards uh, utilizing pretty well-muscled or, you know, um, stereotypically idealized uh, white males. So only in the realm of virtual patients, when they looked at some programs that offered different types of virtual patients, they noticed that the skin tone, which bears no production cost beyond adjusting a slider on the screen, uh, in those situations, they did notice there was significantly equal availability of skin tones and patient size, which makes sense from a programming point of view. The authors make these observations and note that the availability of diverse simulation technology is hardly a panacea and that their analysis has several limitations, which I'd agree with. But they do, however, advocate that educators should be cognizant of inconsistencies and challenge those aspects of the hidden curriculum, which serve as latent microaggressions towards multicultural patient care. And that only with continued attention will learners receive a consistent message that diversity, even if not always obtainable, is important. So this is in simulation healthcare. It's in their concepts and commentary section, which gives you a fair bit of latitude, uh, but definitely a very quantitative review of things that are fairly easy to get a hold of in terms of those simulation brochures. Um, what did you actually think of the paper, Ben? You've given it a nice little description there, but what do you think? I really liked the paper because I think it highlights 
a systematic problem that's easy to under-recognize. Interestingly, in the journal club discussion, I don't think uh, really anyone particularly talked about the methods in the paper. And, uh, you know, I think if you were to challenge the methods, they the authors themselves acknowledge that it is a non-systematic review. And I think that does come with problems in terms of having scientific validity to back up the claims that they made. And I think certainly particularly when I was reading through and trying to summarize uh, their methods, I realized that they're not described, for example, to a level where I think I could replicate that same search. I think certainly for me, one thing, I guess, because I do so many infographics and posters and trying to display stuff visually, I guess um, I have like a Adobe stock account and I do a lot of Google image searches. And I think certainly it mirrors the experience that I have when I'm searching for an image of starting to see the societal patterns that come up that are associated with a particular word. And it can be pretty damning a lot of the time, like trying to find a... uh, non-sexualized picture of a nurse on Google image search is actually, you know, a lot harder than it would be to do the same for a male, for example. Yeah, absolutely. And as you say, it actually does correlate with our personal experience. So we can tend to, I think, to not be quite as hard on the methods given what they were trying to do. You're listening to Simulcast. You know, like I know I've I've submitted concepts and commentary before and the point is just to set some sort of conversational agenda within the community and it doesn't attempt to systematically prove that it's so but to raise the question around it. Yeah, absolutely. I guess in that spirit, um, maybe they weren't strong enough in their challenges, do you think? Yeah, maybe. Uh, Karen Jort, I know you've got a expert commentary for us at the end, but any sort of initial thoughts on the paper, its methods or whether you've had any experience of looking through similar brochures yourself. I do agree with the fact that, um, like Jess has mentioned, it's such a valid point of discussion, despite the fact that it potentially doesn't have the research-oriented, qualitative background that you might um, be looking for as being a non-systematic review. However, I think that the implications of it um, are and need to be very carefully considered, but they have raised that themselves talking about how they would challenge the hidden curriculum that might come with sort of anal- analysing their findings. All right, well, we might then move on to the discussion. So just for anyone who's listening to our podcast for the first time, Every monthly journal club, you can read a case vignette, the paper itself, and some questions posed by Ben on our website. And then you can add some comments to the discussion at www.simulationpodcast.com. So this month, we had plenty of fabulous contributions from a variety of people. And uh, Jess, you're going to take us through some of the highlights from that. For sure. So this one, it was really interesting. There was a distinct sense of um, vulnerability, discomfort and self-reflection. Like I really got this theme of people felt uncomfortable commenting on this. And um, Ian Summers and even yourself, Ben, highlighted this with some of your comments where Ian in particular noted that he wrote and rewrote sentences in an effort to not cause offence. And and that self-reflection kind of seemed to be tied to catalyst personal moments for the commenters. So 
it seemed like the whole discussion was really deeply personal to people. So, for example, Sonia Twiggs said, um, the talk about diversity reminds me of my time spent in Central Australia. And she goes on to explain that for a couple of months in a remote Aboriginal community and a few years in Alice Springs, she was forever grateful to her teacher, a proud elder who tried to teach us the language, but more importantly, shared her experience of being in their world and helped us to understand. And commenters kind of shared similar moments that was a catalyst for learning and change or or even a positive experience for themselves where a more diverse representation of education, whatever that form was, was a moment that has stuck with them and has really um, informed how they approach things. The other dominant theme was that while diversity of mannequins is nice, it's simply not enough. And in the words of Eve Purdy, diversity in mannequins does not equal an anti-racist simulation program. And Komal Bajaj reinforced this and summarised much of the discussion that was going on throughout this blog with the recommendation that anti-racist simulation curriculums need a needs assessment and that shouldn't be just mannequins. That should be from sim content to sim design to sim modalities, including moulage, which personally I'm quite pleased that she raised that, Um, and to who the faculty are. And with an actual equity framework for accountability, so you can't just go in and make these changes without some sort of systemic or underlying agenda from the organisation to achieve these things. Another um, contributor, Samantha Davis, raised concerns about the potential harmful experiences that may be perpetuated through the use of stereotypes in an attempt to diversify and also that sim facilitators are not adequately prepared to address racism, transphobia or other forms of discrimination. And of course myself I express similar concerns with the comment expanding on this that I think we've had a focus on task outcomes as opposed to culture development which may create a bias for these kinds of stereotypes. And there was some great comments further from Ben, yourself, Vic, Susan Ella, Maybell Koo, Sarah Bell and Amy Lannan, which I think some of those were first-time commenters. Changing your mannequin skin colour is not enough and you need a an actual strategy to develop an inclusive curriculum with accountability frameworks to actually achieve that. Karen, I might ask you about that first issue that Jess just raised and then I'll be keen to hear Ben's thoughts on this as well about the reluctance of people to even join uh, the conversation what do you make of that I think this is actually a surprisingly universal phenomena that uh, most of us don't recognize uh, happening for people other than ourselves and I think personally being a brown-skinned Indian female uh, with a Kiwi sounding accent. Um, it's something that I have probably experienced a fair bit of where conversations that I have with other people surrounding these topics or these issues make me incredibly uncomfortable, despite being a relatively confident um, person on a day-to-day basis. Um, and I think it's it's quite um, 
almost it's very enlightening to see that other people actually feel the same way and it almost lifts a weight off your shoulders a little bit to know that everyone's equally uncomfortable about it which means that if we all open up and talk about it a little bit more and might just uh, make the world a little bit more comfortable and introduce it as a topic of normality as opposed to it being a taboo subject that everyone's quite scared of raising and a bit worried about walking on eggshells. All right, Ben, I'm going to get you to come in here because you you were very tough on the discussion people trying to um, pull them out of this reluctance. Uh, but at the same time, I think you acknowledged that often this came from a good place. Not only did people not want to offend, they also were aware that if they did cause micro or macro uh, aggressions, that maybe the people who felt aggrieved wouldn't even be prepared to tell them. So how do we balance this, Ben? And how did that play out, do you think, in the discussion? Well, yeah, I, I do want to emphasize how uh, challenging and interesting this month was to try and facilitate uh, in that there was sort of some front of house on the stage facilitation. And then there was also a lot of backstage facilitation as well, which isn't normal for journal club so uh people would post a comment and then email me saying can you please check it and edit it and let me know if it's okay uh people would message me on twitter and say i've posted something but here are the things that i don't really feel like i can say that i want to say to you um and i got a really strong sense that we had all become really hyper vigilant in uh being wary that in sharing our opinion, we might cause offence to others or misrepresent ourselves. And it kind of, I think at the start of the month, it, it brought people to a place where they were also cautious about speaking for others or um, worried about misrepresenting or misusing their own privilege or not recognising it, almost to the point of a little bit of discussion paralysis. So I did try and name that and maybe overshare a little bit myself to try and role model that you couldn't really mess this up. And what was interesting was that the comments that people were posting, none of which I certainly didn't find personally particularly spicy compared to some of the stuff we've had on Journal Club as well. And I think that speaks to the fact that discussing race and discrimination is a lot harder than we probably acknowledge to ourselves most of the time. The other thing that really was highlighted to me was Eve's discussion around cultural compression and the opportunity that we have to really um, use simulation as a cultural change agent. Yeah, absolutely. So it's not just a matter of um, not getting it wrong. In fact, we can be part of the trying harder to get it right and, in fact, be more architects of solutions rather than merely trying to patch up problems. Is that what you mean? Yeah, 100%. Mm. I actually found the um, the kind of darker mirror of that more personally impactful when, when she sort of challenged the fact that actually not only uh, can we use simulation as a tool to challenge that, but yeah, it exists within our culture currently and therefore it is a tool to replicate those same um, mm. discrimination uh, that's currently happening within whatever society or culture we work in. Yeah, and I really yeah. like that she moved to systematise mm. uh, a problem that might seem kind of um, so nebulous that you wouldn't know how to start and really approached it from a very systematic, let's define it, let's measure it, let's act on it. All right, well, uh, Karen, George, we asked you to write our expert opinion 
as you know, in the Journal Club, we don't mind what kind of expert people opinion people give us, whether it's on the paper itself, on the issue, uh, on their experience or on the other readings around this. So um, we really didn't mind where you took this. Take it from there. Tell us uh, what you thought in your opinion, which is, by the way, on the PDF summary of this that Ben posts on our website. I have to admit, back when you guys asked me to write this, I was very surprised that you had labelled me an expert in this field in uh, any way, shape or form, but I was very touched that I'd been asked to put my thoughts forward. Um, Touching a little bit on my experience being from Rotorua, New Zealand, and the Māori population and the culture that is so heavily embedded into basically uh, society there, um, it was actually a real surprise for me, not only when I came to Australia, but even just moving from Rotorua to Auckland in New Zealand uh, for medical school, the uh, lack of, I guess, cultural inclusion that you would see in some centres in New Zealand compared to what Rotorua had. Um, And a lot of that comes from day one, even when children are in primary schools and through education. I was very familiar growing up on a marae, staying with my friends, um, playing a lot, uh, speaking and singing a lot of Māori songs growing up. Um, I knew a mihi at the same time that I knew how to sort of give a speech in English. And I think all of that uh, really incorporates that cultural diversity um, or rather cultural inclusion um, in Rotorua, New Zealand, particularly where there's a very high Māori population compared to some people who I met in medical school in Auckland who had never experienced anything of the sort, had no uh, real understanding of Māori culture and hadn't had any experience of that themselves. And I think that was uh, similar when I moved over to Australia. Um, I was quite surprised with some of the lack of uh, integration of Indigenous culture here um, compared to what I had seen done in New Zealand. So in terms of this paper that um, we were looking at this month, I thought it was a really interesting subject of discussion, but similar to a lot of the comments that came through in the discussion, I disagreed that the lack of diversity would limit an educator's ability to raise these issues. Um, And similarly, I felt that mandating diversity uh, would not necessarily be the answer as Kamal had um, raised in her points as well. Uh, It's just because it's not that I'm saying mandating is uh, shouldn't happen. I feel that it should be encouraged as opposed to enforced um, because you're wanting to change behavior as opposed to making diversity just a checkbox that we need to tick. Um, where obviously the outcomes are going to be very different if it's uh, just something that you look at and say, yes, we've we've done our diversity checkbox for today, mm-hmm. as opposed to actually incorporating it in the curriculum. Yeah, so representation is necessary but not sufficient. Absolutely, 100%. Um, which probably makes me think that the conversation needs to focus more on the content of simulation and the scenarios um, and directing teaching towards more self-reflection on inherent biases and preconceptions that people may have towards minority groups Um, and whether this is through the use of simulated patients or whether this is through the use of just designing scenarios uh, which incorporate those aspects such as non-English speaking patients who might be saying yes to appease doctors or even considering resuscitation simulations of patients who wear a turban or wear a headscarf Um, and how do you go about that if you're needing to do a primary or secondary survey in the emergency setting. Um, Again though 
the curriculum and training of the educators then has to line up with them being able to deliver uh, the style of content. Yeah, and I think that's one of the tricky things, isn't it? And one of my concerns is that simulation is a bit of a blunt instrument and our ability to recreate any situation is flawed. Uh, No matter how much attention to detail, there's elements of the context that we miss out, uh, whether it's because our simulation relies on a mannequin that's not very human-like or whether it's because our scenarios have got a certain balance of signal and noise. And so I guess the risk is that we are unable to represent fully the context. So then it does run the risk of being tokenistic or at worst stereotypical. What do you think? Absolutely. I think one of the biggest concerns with trying to create these scenarios, particularly with the use of uh, diversifying mannequins or diversifying your simulation technology, is the fact that you run into the hidden curriculum, which may not be in keeping with the actual intentions um, of, of the educators. So you fall into the trap of maybe playing out stereotypes that you didn't intend to play out in the first place, but they just inherently are what uh, becomes the norm because it's what's previously been done um, or it's something different. So you look for a different case as opposed to playing a normal scenario that you would for any fair-skinned mannequin. You think that, oh, we've got a different uh, mannequin today. We've got a dark-skinned mannequin, so we need to write some sort of alternative scenario uh, to match the mannequin, which I think is uh, something that a lot of people have actually recognised as being an issue. Um, And even in the paper themselves, they outlined that there is that uh, hidden curriculum that needs to be challenged and recognised if uh, we're going to promote this in a clinical setting. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, just for simulcast listeners, you can uh, see where Karen Zort has written this beautifully in the um, opinion that she's lent to in the PDF. Uh, ben, comments on what uh, KJ's had to say or indeed um, anything more that you think uh, she's raised? Uh, I loved uh, Karen Jort's uh, commentary, so I look forward to people reading it and won't speak to that specifically. But I did want to push back a little bit in some of the discussion uh, that the group had about um, I felt I mentioned sort of discussion paralysis before and I, and I worried, I think for me, I think that tokenism is problematic, but I also think there's a real quiet dignity that comes from having oneself respectfully included in social narratives. And sometimes the smallest gesture can mean a lot to somebody in a marginalized subgroup uh, if it's done respectfully, even if it's not done perfectly. And so I worry sometimes that um, in time-limited settings with people who are not uh, race relations experts uh, that we start to, as we did with the general club discussion, start to rationalise away uh, even making a contribution out of fear of doing it wrong. And so I guess um, that's my worry is I, I think that there are big steps that we need to do as a simulation community, but I also think there are probably some achievable small steps that we can do that we might worry might not be quite right, but if they're done with good intention uh, and they're done respectfully uh, can maybe make a small difference in the way we move forward as well. Hmm. Beautifully said as always, Ben. Now I'll give the three of you a chance to think of your answer to this uh, and that is what's your 
maybe one or two tips for listeners if they're to be part of the uh, improvement in this area. Uh, but I'm just going to jump in and give a shout out also to while our discussion was going on, Deborah Nestel gave the virtual keynote address at the CSAM, that's the European Society for Simulation in, in Healthcare uh, meeting. And her title was Superiority, Bias and Scholarship in Healthcare Simulation, where she addressed a number of these issues and more, uh, started off thinking about the topic of intersectionality and then moved to most of her talk was about looking at healthcare simulation journals and structural issues related to diversity and inclusion. And she actually broke down how editorial boards uh, were comprised by profession, gender and by country as well as the content of what they published and uh, focusing particularly on gender issues, who were publishing the papers that received the most attention. And then she also took a bit of a deep dive into some healthcare simulation practices, particularly with regard to simulated patient methodology and how we could ensure that um, patient voices really were represented here and not just clinician voices. So we'll post a link to that talk um, in the blog post accompanying this episode as well. Now, I'll see if uh, my team are up to the challenge. Ben, did you have maybe one take-home that either you or you think others should do? Sure. I think there's two that I'm going to submit. So one sort of very broad and one very specific. So one I think would be that we often uh, rant on about the power of simulation as a storytelling tool. And I think uh, the next time maybe when uh, you go to write a scenario or simulation of some description, uh, take uh, a moment of time to reflect, is there another group or subgroup that I can include or invite to the table to share this story that might make it more granular and uh, specific in a way uh, that moves us forward in regards to diversity. And then the second one I'd do was, I guess, a very um, – been specific one but certainly when, when looking at visually the slides we use uh, the imagery we create with moulage um, and in our supportive documentation uh, have a think about is there somebody who looks different than me who I can include in this imagery to create a richer tapestry than I currently have. Wonderful thank you. Karen Jort what do you think? I'm, I think that one take-home point that I would hope that all the listeners would uh, hold true to is the fact that they shouldn't, as educators, they shouldn't undervalue the role that they have in actually shaping the clinical experience, not only of ethnic patients or my minority group patients, but also of minority group clinicians um, as well. And the two ways that I think you can sort of approach this is one, trying to uh, be comfortable or more comfortable with the simple act of discussing the issue and making it more of a normality. Um, and the second thing is uh, not being afraid to challenge uh, learners to self-reflect on their own belief systems. And hopefully in time, this will make people more open to having that conversation and hopefully about asking about other cultures and belief systems and making it a slightly more comfortable conversation to be having. Wonderful. Thank you very much. Uh, Jess? One is go and challenge yourself to be uncomfortable in learning about other cultures and, and things that you wouldn't always be exposed to. 
But two is expanding a little bit on Ben's um, suggestion about who can be at the table is flipping it around the other way. Who doesn't have access to this table or who can't get to this table, um, whether it's designing the simulation or whether it's the simulation itself, just from that perspective of trying to understand the systems that block this cultural change or this active anti-racism um, to think about it from that other angle of who who isn't um, able to access this table. All right. Well, I'm going to pull it up there, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, but what an amazing conversation. I certainly hope it continues in our simulation community. Uh, thank you very much, Karen Jort, for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. I was It was a real honour to be part of this conversation. All right. Well, uh, Simulcast listeners, don't forget you can uh, go and read the full Journal Club comments as well as the summary on uh, www.simulationpodcast.com. Before we go, Ben, did you want to just tell us about the paper for next month? I do. So we are changing uh, gears significantly. I'm going to move on from discussing diversity to something more specific. Um, How to include medical students in your healthcare simulation center workforce. So this is a paper uh, in advances in simulation by Vigas et al. uh, describing uh, some reflections and experiences of those authors on not just how to teach medical students, but how to actively engage them within your service to help you do it better. And I hope as well that the podcast that you've got coming up uh, interviewing the team uh, will also be a useful conversation starter to the Journal Club blog discussion. Yes, so look out for that one. Uh, I did have a chat with Sandra Vigas, the first author of that paper, and Rowan Dace from Cape Town, rather, uh, about the paper. So that should help the discussion. While we're on news, I'll also just mention that Jesse Spur, who's not with us tonight, but is putting together a podcast episode about the best tech hacks for, hacks for simulation. So if you've got a great app or something else that you use when you deliver simulation, we'd like to hear from you. And so we'll be putting out a little social media splash shortly where you can send in your suggestions. But with that, um, thanks for another great episode, team. And this is Victoria Brazel signing off for Simulcast. You're listening to Simulcast, a podcast about healthcare simulation.